Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 37, 1 to 36. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made, a robe, made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pastoring the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, 
balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. I'm excited to be back in our Genesis series for the fourth uh, and final installment, actually, of this uh, two and a half year window of covering Genesis with some other things in between. Remember, we wrapped up the life of Jacob in January this year, and we were challenged by the ups and downs of this man Jacob's life and God's faithfulness to him as God's chosen covenant people through whom the Messiah would come. From his early days, do you remember real quick, Jacob was called the heel grabber, the deceiver of his family and his brother, the stealer of the inheritance and blessing and we talked about his trials that he went through and his, the scoundrel father-in-law Laban, 20 years working to be given a bride to his wrestling with God in the wilderness, to his reconciliation with Esau, the brother he deceived, and then another deceiving of Esau, to his partial obedience when he entered the promised land but then lingered for 10 years that brought about the tragic assault of his daughter, do you remember that, and the genocide that his sons committed to 30 years after God appeared to Jacob. Then finally in Bethel being back there where they had seen the angel staircase, finally fulfilling the vow to return to that land and that place again. And now we transition. We transition to the story of his sons and in particular Joseph, who from here on out kind of serves as the main character, uh, the protagonist of the story. And I think the timing of this series couldn't be more perfect as it deals with pain and providence in our lives. And it looks at the idea of how divine sovereignty, God's control of all things, and how human responsibility, how they intersect. And who here hasn't suffered in the last couple of years? Every one of us. And it deals with real people's lives as they cope to live in a foreign culture. As we heard the last verse, Joseph, Joseph was sold into Egypt, into slavery, into this pagan culture. And who here doesn't feel like our culture is changing and the Christianity is becoming more marginalized and, and more stigmatized. 
We'll also look at how God himself puts himself in impossible situations, which look like no-win situations, like this morning, to show us that he always finds a way of working his plan in our lives. It's a story, as you see on the screen, of life's pain and God's purpose. It's actually my favorite of the four graphics that we've had for this series. Just a side note. I really like it. God's, our life's pain and God's purpose. Think about how quick we are to speak the words, God is so good, when something good happens in your life. Material blessing, health, wealth, God is so good. But how often when bad things happen, we say, where are you, God? Why is this happening? You know, I prayed about this, God. You have failed me. Or, God, you've messed up big time here. I can't believe this is happening. I promise you, if you let yourself enter into this story and you see the truths God is teaching us through it as we follow these real people's lives now, you will come out the other side looking at your life differently, looking at God differently, looking at the joy in your life differently, and looking at the pain and suffering in your life differently. I promise you that. You'll understand life differently. You'll understand it more biblically. So let's do that. Let's look this morning as we begin this new series on the life of Joseph. Hopefully you've got your worship folder and your outline there and the scripture open to chapter 37, which Kathy did such a magnificent job reading for us this morning. We're going to look at this life of Joseph. And in this first scene, we see no mention of God and a lot of sin, right? between Jacob's family members. So, I mean, it's the obvious question. If this is God's chosen family and the family of the promised Messiah, where is God in all of this hot mess? That was the title of our message this morning. Where is he? Where is he at? What's he doing? But don't you ask that question in your life often? Where are you in this, God? What are you doing in this? How could you be doing anything in this? Why would you allow this to happen? Where are you working in this? And the answer is that he's working just as much in the silence as he is in his immediacy. We're going to see that this morning. You might have trouble believing that this morning. I'm struggling with that this morning. But that's the truth of this story. So let's uncover some hidden things today. That's kind of our idea. We're going to uncover some hidden things in this passage. Let's look at the first one. There is hidden sin in this family beneath the surface that is going to be revealed really, really quickly. Hidden sin beneath the surface will be revealed. So what is go what's going on with this family here? This is a tragic story of sin and wrongdoing between brothers and a family. Here's what this means. I heard one pastor describe it like this, and it's hit so close to home for us that I just grabbed his image this week because it works so well. Some of you remember, by sight actually, by vision, what Mount St. Helens looked like before May of 1980. Some of you remember that. When we think of a mountain, when you think of something like that, or Mount Hood, any of the mountains around here, you think of something permanent, don't you? You think of something long-standing, stalwart, faithful, this beautiful snow-capped mountain. Much like Jacob's 
family and his 12 sons, big family, strong family, prosperous, having lots of kids, permanent and long-standing. How many of you lived here um, when it blew? Let me show A lot of you, yeah, you remember that day. Well, here's what it looked like after. I mean, you see what looked great on the surface wasn't reality because underneath that mountain, something was hidden. Something was brewing underneath and it was about to blow. There was something inside of Jacob's family that was brewing too. It was about to explode. And like Mount St. Helens, this family will never look the same. It's sin. It's sin. Like the heart of lava below the surface, the sin that's running deep in this family that we're going to uncover as we see as it blows today. Let's uncover it and take a look. Here's what the first thing we see in this family bubbling under the surface that, that just comes exploding forth. Jacob trades one inordinate love for another. Every family member is involved in this sinful story. The cover verse on your outline lets us in on this ugly family dynamic that Jacob had 12 sons and yet he loves one of those sons more than the rest. Here's the verse. How now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Let's remember now, just for a moment, back to Israel. That's Jacob. Remember, his name has changed. Let's remember back to his history. Remember, Esau, Jacob's twin brother, was the favorite. And Jacob desperately wanted to, the love of his father Isaac. So wanted it. And he never quite had it the way Esau did. Jacob's father, Isaac, played favorites too. He loved Esau. Esau was his favorite not Jacob, and that devastated Jacob. And you know what we see here? We see the pattern of family sin playing out again. Now, Jacob has his favorite. Well, Jacob had this inner longing and desire from his childhood that were not fulfilled in his own father. And so what happens? He finds a wife, Rachel, which is a good thing. She was incredibly attractive, if you remember. The Bible describes her as beautiful. But Jacob's love for her actually was not so attractive. If you remember back from our stories, his love was an inordinate love. It means over, overblown, too big almost, unhealthy. Chapter 32, if you remember, we were meant to see his love as kind of this over-the-top, inappropriate display of love, of lust, of emotion, and all the rest that was actually idolatrous. He, he placed too much value. It was inordinate. If I could just have her, then all my problems would be solved. Life would mean something and I would be okay. She was his favorite, do you remember? His favorite. And he did marry her and guess who Rachel's son is? Joseph. And Benjamin's the other. And if you remember the story, Rachel dies in childbirth, and now Joseph has become the new favorite. The same family pattern of sin is going on, and now he, this inordinate love of Jacob's life, now he, Joseph, he is my everything. He is my one. He gives him the special robe. Now, we're not actually sure if this robe was 
many colored. Sorry, the, sorry, Technicolor Dreamcoat. We're not quite sure. The Hebrew isn't really clear, but what is clear, what we're meant to see is that this was an inordinate love that played out in Jacob's lavishing of riches on Joseph. He poured riches on this one son in ways he didn't on the other 11. I mean, think about the impact of that. It's bad enough when siblings fight over the will when the parents are gone, but a living parent lavishing all the wealth on one child of 12? Joseph was the idol of Jacob's life, we're seeing. The pattern goes on. Isaac had Esau, Jacob had Rachel, now he has Joseph. He was his pride and joy, and this was the lava beneath the surface. It was right there, ready to explode. And it blew up the family, which resulted in this. Joseph's lying arrogance and the brother's hatred. That's how it exploded and blew. Well, what do we see in Joseph and the brothers? Well, first, Joseph is, is, is just 17 years old. He's a boy. And he brings this bad report to his father about the brothers. The Hebrew there implies a, a false report, a misrepresentation, maybe even an outright lie about his brothers. It was a bad report. And then we have these dreams. You will all bow down to me. <laughs> what do you think the look on their faces was when he told his 11 brothers that? Uh, this was a culture of younger serving the elder. This was a culture of kids bowing to parents and younger siblings always bowing to the elder siblings, especially the oldest. And he has a second dream. And what does he do? He goes back. <laughs> he goes back. He's either oblivious to the impact his first dream had on his brothers, which is not good, not a good sign. And if he knows he's bordering on evil, sinful behavior, so Joseph, I th we're meant to see here, he's lying, he's arrogant, he's a spoiled rich brat. <laughs> and his brothers, Moses, records three times in these passages, which is important as Hebrew narrative is sparse, and so whatever's there really matters. But so three times, he says, they hated him, verse uh, four. They hated him even more, verse five says, and verse 8 says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Can you sense there was a lot going on in this family? A lot underneath the surface. A lot brewing beneath this surface of this family. Lava, sin, ready to explode. Maybe your family feels like that too. Those unspoken things that you know are there that it's just going to take one little word for it to break out. We've been living, looking in this stark reality at the lives of people of Genesis. For two years, we've been looking at this. And, and, and this has to be a practical takeaway for us this morning, is that in this story, there are no heroes but God. There are no heroes in this story. And this is Moses' point. I mean, if he was wanting to give us good parenting advice, he didn't do a very good job of it. If he was wanting us to say, us, you know, look at this family, live this way, I mean, why would he be doing that? These are the heroes of the faith, you might say, as we read this. 
See, I'm actually certain this makes some of us uncomfortable. I know that. This makes some of you uncomfortable. Maybe you've never heard the heroes of the Bible explain this way in such dark terms, but we've said this here before, and I think we'll always say this here at Bethany, is the purpose of these stories is to point to God as the hero. That's the purpose. Some people look at their Bibles, though, and see the characters, and they say, the Bible teaches us how to live, and here are the examples, and here are the right rules, and when you keep them, God's blessing will be yours. It's a book of rules. That's religion. That's obey to be accepted. Live this way and God will be good to you. But look at them. Lying. Deceit. Favoritism. Hatred. And we're only a few verses in. There are no heroes here. Now the gospel is something entirely different. And that's Moses' point actually. And it's actually on every page of scripture. This story is here to show us this this broken, desperate, sinful family needs God's grace to break in and actually needs it to break in against their wills, against what they actually want, to break into their life and save them. And isn't that the story of your family and your life too? And when you're finally assured When God's grace does break into your life, the gospel takes hold and root in your life, and you're finally assured that in Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection and mercy, that you're absolutely secure, loved, and redeemed, then you obey because you already know you're accepted. It's two entirely different ways to look at the Bible. They need God to break in. And as we'll see it, it is an absolutely radical salvation that comes to them in the details. It's a radical deliverance in all the details. It's a radical transformation in, in all the details that has to take place to save this messed up family. So let's look at it by uncovering this next thing. Where there's this sin bubbling under the surface, we've got God working. Providence, you might call it. His sovereignty, his hand. And what it means, as we uncovered, is that God has a purpose for this family. It's kind of hidden right now, but we're going to see that he has purposes. And not only does he have purposes, he is always at work. Always. But where's God in this story? As, as the chapter was read, did you, did you hear it? Did you catch that? I mean, you won't find a chapter of Genesis that seems to be, have less God mentioned in, them, in it. Less God than this chapter, chapter 37 of Genesis. And yet maybe he is more at work here than he is clear, more clear than anywhere else. Yes, we've got the sin brewing underneath the surface, but God is at work too. Let's see how, because there's really great encouragement for us this morning in this fact. In this fact. Let's take a look. Grace is always subversive. It's always subversive this way. God is working in ways that you and I, we can't imagine. Subversive means kind of uh, almost in an undermining, backwards, in a way we can't think of possibly. That's what I mean by subversive. God's grace works in ways we can't imagine, and many times we actually don't like. Let's talk about these dreams. 
why are his brothers so upset? I mean, hatred three times and, and, does, and wanting to kill him? Why are his brothers so, so upset? And, and why does his father rebuke his favorite son? I mean, it took a lot. He was his favorite. Now, we can't quite understand this. If one of our family members told us dreams like this, we'd probably be annoyed, a bit frustrated. But here, they hate him and want to kill him. Why? They lived in a context of a very male-dominant honor culture. The younger always bowed to the older. The kids always, always bowed to their parents, and even their older siblings. That's just the life they lived. That's just the culture that they were in. This salvation, this this grace that's going to come to this family, it's subversive because what does God do? He turns their world upside down. God is saying to this family, even through these dreams, they don't know it yet, but he's saying, I'm going to come into this family and I'm going to save them from themselves and from sin and save them from the coming devastating famine in a way they would never imagine. They could never come up with this. I'm going to turn their world upside down. The unexpected Joseph will be the deliverer. The unexpected Joseph will save all of you. And actually a lot of people, if you know the story. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. But God does it. God does it. Well, how you say? He's not even mentioned in the chapter. He's not even mentioned here. Let's look at the details. God works through all the details here. You're thinking details? It looks like a bunch of chaotic accidents, totally out of control, or at best, a bunch of coincidences. But I want you just to think about this. Jacob just decides to send Joseph to find his brothers at Shechem. But the brothers just happened to go to Dothan, which is in the middle of nowhere, a place where you can get away with something, like killing your brother or throwing him in a pit. And Joseph just happens to come to the place where he happens to run into a stranger who happened to just overhear where his brothers had planned to go, Dothan. And then Joseph comes and they assault him, and Reuben happens to be there to keep him from getting killed, but then happens to not be there to keep him from being sold into slavery. Are you catching where I'm going with this? Every single coincidence had to happen or this entire family dies. And not just this family, but many, 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 many others Every coincidence had to happen or this entire family dies. If you know the story, and it was a little hint at the end of the chapter, Joseph's going to be placed in a high government position. And through wisdom that he gains through his trials and the word of God, he's going to make a plan for this famine that's going to come. Saves his family and many others. Well, not only that, if every single coincidence in this story didn't happen the line of the Messiah would die. More importantly even, the promised line of Jesus would be snuffed out from the earth. They all die if these details don't work exactly like this. Well, and we're dead too, right? (laughs) 
We have no hope, too, if this family dies. We're not sitting here today, actually, if this family dies. Including the horrific details of what happens to Joseph. Now, it doesn't make sense on the surface. I get it. It doesn't make sense on the surface to Joseph or his family, but underneath it, like the lava, underneath it, God was doing something good. His purpose was working. He was at work. He was up to something. He was arranging for the salvation of this family and ours too, through all the details of this life and of your life. Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? I know that's, that's, that'll be the hardest thing I say this morning, probably. Romans 8, 28. And we know, do we know? <laughs> and we know that for those who love God, all things, all? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Which means this, providence and pain are compatible. God's working is, in other words, this is your next fill in there. Providence and pain are compatible. They can work together. They can go together. God's working, God's doing something, and the pain in our life. Now, verse 23 and 24 describe horrific things that were done to Joseph. It's horrible things. He's, he's grabbed by his own brothers. He's stripped naked by his brothers. The Hebrew word there means um, uh, the, like the skinning of an animal. It's horrific. He's thrown into a pit and abandoned. The Hebrew there word is always used when a dead body is just left for dead. He's abandoned for dead. And later on, we hear in the story in chapter 42, when the brothers are in front of him, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. So all these terrible things happen to Joseph. It's brutal. It's horrific. In the hands and the grasp of his own brothers and sisters, he's crying out, they say later on in chapter 42, from the pit, naked and scared, help me. Don't do this. Don't leave me here. D -d Deliver me. And unless it happens just like this, all these people are lost and dead and famine comes and they all starve to death. But not only physically, they're also spiritually lost if it doesn't happen this way. Because on the other side of this story, every one of these people will come out looking different. Is Joseph as a 17-year-old punk, arrogant punk, ready to save the world? No. Only because Joseph was attacked, abandoned, and sold into slavery will he be saved from his own arrogance and lying ways. And only the brothers will be delivered from their hatred that is brewing in their hearts. 
And maybe even Jacob will stop playing favorites. But you hear that and you go, yeah, but why does it have to be so hard in my life? <laughs> why does it have to be so hard? I mean, don't you ask that question? You, I know you do. I ask that question in my life. Why does it have to be so hard? Why, God, do you have to work through such hard circumstances to change me? I mean, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better if an angel just showed up on the scene and said to them, hey, you're all acting like a bunch of idiots. Knock it off. <laughs> I mean... If it were that, only that easy. But here's the, th here's the truth. When somebody comes alongside of you and, 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 and tells you your faults, it doesn't really work. You have to be shown them. You have to see them. It's the same way with God's love, that I can tell you over and over again, God loves you, but until you experience it yourself, it really doesn't mean that much. You have to be shown these kind of things. But why does it have to be so hard? <laughs> Can't we be shown in a little bit easier ways? All the commentaries, pretty much all of them, point to the fact that Dothan is mentioned a couple times in Scripture where two different things took place in the same place, Dothan, and two absolutely different responses from God. A couple hundred years later after this Joseph story, Elisha the prophet is in Dothan in 2 Kings. And he's surrounded by an army, surrounded by an army. And he's there with his servant. You could say he cries out from the pit, like Joseph did. He cries out, God, deliver us, save us, get us out of this mess. What happens? Do you remember that story? An angel army appears. And chariots of fire come in and save him and get him out of this, this, this mess that he's in where he was surely dead. It's incredible. Now, why can't that be the way God works in my life? Why can't that be the way God works in, in, in your life? It, it's incredible. You cry from the, the pit, save me, and trumpets from heaven blow. And chariots of fire come down with angels, and they whisk you away. Voila, it's done. That's how I want to go through life. Doesn't make sense. Same Bible, same God, same place. Yet one cries out and is left to die, and another's whisked away. Doesn't make sense, does it? What's going on? Doesn't seem fair, even, you might say. Well, here's the answer. Elijah's saving was not as complex. It was a bit more simple. It was just basically a physical deliverance of his life. Joseph needed a much bigger, much more profound, much greater saving of the spiritual nature. And so do we. So do you. So do I. If he's saved from the pit in the way Elijah was, guess what? Joseph remains both lost physically, famine comes and he dies, and guess what? Spiritually, he's never transformed through what he has to go through. See, God was active and saying and saving and loving and caring for Joseph in his hidden grace as much and maybe more so than if he had swooped down and said, knock it off, knuckleheads. <laughs> He's just as active and maybe more so. 
And he is in your suffering too. He is. He is in your pain too. I mean, look at it. Peter was put in prison and his disciples pray for him. And what happens? An angel comes, the doors bust open and he's let out. John the Baptist is put in prison and his disciples pray too and he's beheaded. Is God working in one and not the other? No. He's working in both. And if you really believe that, what kind of person would you be? What kind of person would I be? What kind of people would we be? How would we respond to suffering in life? I know you're hearing that. You think, yeah, okay. That sounds good on paper. <laughs> but that's really hard to believe. That God's working in both. That God's working right now in Eastern Europe. I mean, how, how do you look at that and go, God's working there? That's really hard to swallow. I mean, you might think, how can I really understand this? How can we get this this morning and say, yeah, that's true. We got to look at the third one. We got to uncover the third thing. It's this pattern of grace that we see. This pattern of grace that's revealed in Joseph's suffering. I get it, on the surface, most of your life, most of my life looks ridiculous. It does, from our perspective. It might look crazy, it might look stupid, it might look, I can't even believe this, it looks ridiculous on the surface. When you're in the middle of it, when you're in the middle of God's saving program, it looks sometimes insane and even unkind. Joseph could not see it. And, and you know what, actually, maybe if he had, he probably would have chosen not to go through what he had to go through to get there. Probably the same for us too. But God's sovereign grace breaks into his life. And if we could truly grasp the plan that God does have for us, the end of the story from the beginning, how would we handle suffering? How would you handle it differently, maybe? There's really two things that we can handle suffering. Two, two ways we can handle suffering. Two things we can do as we're in it. Here they are. Suffering will either wreck you or refine you. That's it. Suffering in your life will either wreck you or change you, refine you. Now by itself, suffering will destroy you. It will harden you. It will turn you bitter. It'll make you callous to other people's sufferings. It will distort you in grotesque ways. It'll make you angry and hostile at others and at God. Suffering by itself will destroy you and wreck your life as it destroys your heart from the inside out. And some of us who call ourselves Christians have even allowed suffering to do this to us. I was thinking this week of the new Batman movie that's breaking um, box office records. Anybody seen it yet? Anybody? A few of us. Okay. It's got great reviews. Um, and we all know Batman, whether you've seen this movie or the others. 
But I was thinking about that character this week and why we're so drawn to him and why it's such an archetype character. Batman suffered greatly, witnessed the murder of his own parents, and he so desperately wants salvation as a character, as a superhero, and justice and things to be right, and he even goes so far as to put on his own coat, right? His own cape, I guess you'd call it. But his own outfit and costume, he puts it on, and he's trying to get rid of the bad guys. He doesn't want suffering in life for his city, Gotham, or for himself. He's trying to get rid of the bad guys. But as you think of Batman, is he really that good himself? Would he make a good dinner partner? <laughs> I mean, none of us would say that Batman is a joyful character, probably. No, he's been wrecked by his suffering. He's been destroyed by his suffering. His justice is angry. His goodness is dark. In fact, I heard the movie is actually so dark, they had to come up with new technology so you could actually see the characters and how dark the scenes are. His goodness is dark. His salvation is temporary, and it's actually futile. And Gotham, the city that he lives in and is attempting to, to save and redeem, is a picture of a city that deals with suffering without hope. Batman and Gotham carry the suffering of the world on their own shoulders with a coat of their own making. And it's turned them hard and dark. You see, the one token that Joseph had, the one thing he had to know that his father loved him was what? The beautiful, expensive coat. He had that one thing. He had this beautiful coat of assurance of his father's love. And, and, and in his case, what happened? It was ripped from him. And ironically, he used to deceive Jacob, who used another coat another time, didn't he, to deceive his father, also of a goat? <laughs> really interesting. They used a goat to cover it with blood. He used a coat, and kind of strange, but ironic. But Joseph's coat was ripped for him, from him. But if there was just a way for you and I to be certain, to absolutely know without a doubt and have the assurance of God's sovereign purposes and absolute love for us, our own coat, how would you come through suffering? How would you walk through those hard days? Now, of course, it still hurts. We're not called to be you know, stoics as Christians by any means. Jesus expressed his pain and suffering more than anybody. Of course it still hurts. But I will tell you this, you wouldn't end up bitter, angry, hostile. You'd actually end up wiser and, and, and more joyful and more certain and more, more stalwart and faithful in the long run. You'd, we'd be a people who would understand our own hearts better and, and we'd be able to help others who suffer better. We'd, we'd be resilient. We'd be refined. Refined, not wrecked. How can you get that kind of assurance? I want that. Do you want that? How can you get that kind of assurance? The assurance of the, 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 the Father's beautiful coat of love. Do you know how we get it this morning? It's the pattern of salvation hidden in Joseph's life. 
that we're going to uncover. It doesn't make sense. It turns the world upside down, goes against cultural norms. It even breaks in against our own will. But the ultimate pattern of the gospel is right here, even in this story. You know this. Many centuries later, there was another man, wasn't there, who was despised, who was rejected, who was stripped naked, who was sold by his brothers for money. And guess what? He too was thrown in a pit. He too was abandoned. He too was left for dead. And guess what? When he cried out from the pit, just like Joseph to be delivered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pull me from this pit, clothe me, save me, give me back my coat, Father. Do you know what he was met with? Utter silence. Joseph was turned into a savior through his suffering. He would never be wise enough to handle the conflict with his brothers. He'd never be able to deliver the world through a famine unless he suffered, unless he was rejected, unless he was abandoned and sold. And Jesus, too, was turned into a savior through his suffering. But while Joseph was ripped from him, what did Jesus do? He voluntarily stepped into it. He, he, he ran into it. Jesus' suffering redeemed you so that you can be refined in your suffering and not wrecked. We all know this. Every human knows this. When suffering hits us, on some level, whether Christian or not in the world, when suffering hits you, you know on some level there is some punishment I deserve for the way I've lived my life. There's just something I'm owed for the way I've lived my life. But it's in those moments where we grab onto the truth that Jesus died for us. He lost the Father's coat of love so you could have it. That's what he did. So you could have that code of assurance as you walk out of here today or as you walk into your next fiery trial, which might start this afternoon. I don't know that. We don't know that. But we do know he paid the penalty we deserve. We know he died the death we deserve so that we could have that assurance today that assurance of God's love. You can say, I know he loves me. You know, there's a lot of reasons you could say why God lets us go through horrible things, why he allows wars to break out, why he allows the brothers to, to rip this man apart and sell him as a slave, but it can't be because he doesn't love us if the cross is true. It can't be because he doesn't love you. And so we cry out to him and even if you don't get answers, because we might not get answers this side of heaven, but you know what? You actually don't need answers in your suffering. You need a person. You need Jesus. You need him. So know that he is working in the details of your suffering too. Pursue him. Go get him. You know what? Scripture even talks in that language, doesn't it? Put him 
on. Put him on. Wear him. And if we do that, we will come out the other side of this series wiser, stronger, more patient, more loving, more resilient, living a life for God's glory. Let's pray. There is not a harder topic, God, or harder thing to think through than how you work through suffering and even evil. And yet we can't say that you weren't working in this story as we look at the first chapter of Joseph's life. And we see the end, and we know that even Joseph will say that. You meant it for evil. God used the evil for good. That is so hard for us to grasp. And yet if it's not true, in our suffering, we're alone in the bottom of the pit with no help. So Jesus, this morning, give us that hope. Give us that assurance. Place on us that warm, beautiful coat of assurance of God's love. So that we'll be more resilient, more patient, more kind, and able even to come alongside others as they are in their own pit. Thank you for your word. Spirit, continue to apply it as we go from here today. Amen.